One of the things that we have said over the years as a church, since the beginning, since we planted this church was this, if we were to disappear off the map one day, we would hope that the city of Austin would notice. If Red Rocks was suddenly gone, we would hope that because of the ways we've loved this city and served this city because of the impact we've had, that Austin would feel it if we were gone. We did this series like three months into our church called Church by Design, and we talked about wanting to be a church where the doors open wide and the roots run deep and the reach goes far. And in the last four years, we've seen God do that. His favor and his grace on this place. We've seen wide open doors welcome so many of you in here. And people come to know God, to find out how amazing this God is who loves you, who died for you, who rose from the grave for you. And then plug in and start to live on purpose and community, putting roots down in faith. And together, we get to go change the world, to reach far beyond these four walls, which is our heartbeat. There's a pastor named Chris Hodges who says that the church is the only organization that exists for its non-members, that we're here for everybody outside of these four walls so that they can come to know the good news of Jesus that we know. And that's why outreach, generosity, those things for us, they're non-negotiables. They're not emotional decisions for us. It's our DNA. In a time when there's been a pandemic, an economy in flux, on paper, what makes the most sense in individuals, corporations, and churches tend to say the first thing that has to go, if something does, is whatever we're doing beyond ourselves. Generosity, outreach, we're gonna have to cut that. But we'll never do that at this church because it's our DNA. We will always, no matter how our budget looks, the first fruits of what comes in here always goes back out to serve in our city and serve on the other side of the world, all the way to things like a pastoral training center that we support and pay for on the other side of the world where 25 pastors every year are being trained up to go plant churches where there's never been a church before. People groups that have never heard of Jesus before. That's what we're about. That's why we've invested in our first campus that we ever launched as a church was our God Behind Bars campus to welcome the amazing women at the Murray unit into this family. This is our DNA. One of the biggest wins of this year was getting to hire Mackenzie Hamilton as our full-time outreach ministry lead. To have somebody, have somebody on our staff. We should, if we're gonna clap for Mackenzie, let's clap for Mackenzie. If you're not clapping, you don't know her. We're a young church with a small staff, and so on paper, a priority hire is not an outreach ministry lead because that's not pertinent on paper to the day-to-day -day operations of a church. But that is pertinent to the day-to-day -day operations of this church because we will continue to push ourselves to go outside these four walls. We exist for everybody outside of this place. And so if we were to disappear, we would hope that the city of Austin would notice because of the impact that we have. And we all get excited about that as a whole, as a church family, but today I wanna to challenge you individually with a question that's been convicting me, and it's this. If you were to move out of your neighborhood, would your neighbors notice? If you left your neighborhood today, would the neighborhood feel it? If you're a note taker, the title of this message is The Christian Next Door. And here's the thesis of it. It should matter that your neighbor lives next door to a Christian. It should matter. It should make a difference in their life. And the reason that it's dead silent in this room right now is because there's a couple people that are like, let's go, come on, challenge us. We gotta get out there and share our faith, push us out the doors. And a whole bunch of other people going, oh man, 
I was just starting to feel good about my faith, and now I'm gonna be reminded that I don't do enough, I don't love my neighbors. In fact, I just realized I don't even know my next-door neighbor's name. During the 9 a.m. online, they took a poll of our online community, how many people know their next-door neighbor's names, and 59% knew their names, and 41% did it. So that's why we hear this and go, oh, no, here comes the guilt trip. I'm gonna walk out of church with the weight of the world on my shoulders, feeling like I gotta go love my neighbors and do a bunch of things this week to try to prove to God that I'm a real Christian and probably burn out pretty quickly. And my hope today is that's not how you walk out of here. That actually we crack a code today that helps you to understand maybe why it's really hard for you or us as believers to share our faith and to love our neighbors. And hopefully to walk out of here with freedom into the call that God has for us, but viewing it maybe differently than you have before. If you're new to church or Christianity, you still probably heard the idea of love your neighbor as yourself. And that came from Jesus. We consider that a mandate in our faith. That's what we're called to do is to love our neighbors. But that's not an easy call, right? Because neighbors are much like a box of chocolates. You don't know what you're gonna get. You don't know who's gonna move in next door to you. They might be very different than you. Very difficult people. You don't know who's gonna be on your street. And I've been thinking about this in my neighborhood, observing, thinking about my relationships with neighbors, and I've come up with what I would say are the three types of neighbors. And I'm gonna illustrate them to you through some photos and stories. The first type of neighbor is simply the normal neighbor. And this picture exemplifies it. Here's what. My family walks by this little shared island patch of grass between two houses in my neighborhood all the time. And it aggravates me so much. It's obvious that one person's diligent about mowing and one person is not. But that's not what aggravates me. I'm not the guy with the notepad calling the HOA. If you don't mow your lawn, whatever. I don't have time to worry about that. What aggravates me is that this person mows their lawn and doesn't take the extra five seconds to just mow that part because <laughs> it's their neighbor's lawn and it's across the property line which I think exemplifies how so many of us live as neighbors. You mind your business, we'll mind ours. Leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. God forbid we walk out of our front doors at the exact same moment, maybe I'll wave to you. <laughs> I've studied different cultures of the world and missiology and looking at the, the relationship within cultures and you can break the whole world into cold climate and warm climate cultures. And we would be in the West considered a cold climate culture, though in the summer here you would never know we have cold weather, but because people are more likely to stay indoors, it starts to have effects on the relationships. And those words, warm and cold, have a lot to do with actually how community operates. So here in Western culture, we have our high privacy fences. We let our garage doors close before we get out of our cars so that we don't have to see our neighbors. We don't know our neighbors. You go to a warm climate, like a Latin American neighborhood, and you'll experience something very different, where community is at the base of society. And everybody knows everybody. You don't find people eating alone at restaurants. We're in this together, but we are so individualistic that we operate like this, the normal neighbor. We had some people moving across the street from us a while back, and I went over to introduce myself and tell them a little about us, try to get to know them. Hey, we live right there. If you ever need anything, we're right there. And the lady looks at me and she goes, okay, cup of sugar guy. <laughs> and that was the end of our conversation. I was just like... All right, this is gonna be a tough one. <laughs> and I don't wanna have relationships like that with my neighbors because I wanna be neighbor number two, which is the loving neighbor. This is a picture 
of the shared yard, I'm proud to say, between us and our next door neighbors on one side. And you can see it's evenly mowed because whichever one of us is out mowing just mows the whole thing. Two years ago, Oliver and Christina moved into our neighborhood and we had a Tim Allen Wilson over the fence conversation. And it has grown into a great relationship between our family and theirs. Our kids are friends. We've gotten to know each other, hang out a lot. We got to invite them to church. They've plugged in here. Oliver's on our safety team. Christina's on our God Behind Bars team. Their kids, Magnus and Alina, go to Red Rocks Kids. It's been this awesome story of relationship. And when I'm out mowing, I'm already out there. It's 1,000 degrees. They're busy. I'm like, well, I might as well just take the extra time and just mow this whole thing because there's no property. We're neighbors. We love these guys. It's fun for me to preach this message, by the way, because my college neighbor, Luke, is in the house today. This guy lived two doors up from Doug Ryan and I in our college days. And I can say we were very loving neighbors. We had a lot of fun. He's seen us way back, way back when. We had a loving neighbor relationship as well. He would bring muscle milk to our house. He played football, so he would bring supplements for us to try to bulk up, even though we're made very differently. But we still tried. We have this awesome relationship with those next door neighbors and you might hear them be like, oh, good for you, pastor. You're a loving neighbor, congratulations. But before you pat me on the back, I'll tell you the story of when I almost burned my other next door neighbor's house down. <laughs> my son and I were in our backyard one day and all of a sudden I heard yelling in the front of my house. And I thought maybe a fight was about to break out. So I went running out through our side gate and as soon as I opened the gate, I was just met with a heat wave. And I took in a lot of information in about a second which was first, my trash can is on fire. Who lit my trash can on fire? Like big flames. And then I realized the yelling was coming from the mailman who was running up yelling, there's a fire, there's a fire, trying to grab the hose off of my neighbor's house. I realized, oh yeah, there's a hose right here on my house. So I grab that and we just start spraying. My neighbor runs out and she sees it and she's like, oh, blank. And she runs back into her house. Her son runs out, they're terrified. And as we're spraying, I'm realizing this trash can is up against the fence that runs directly to their house. And I had a moment where I thought, this thing's not going out. Thank God, by the grace of God, we did get that fire out. There was a lot of grace of God in this story. We got the fire out. By the grace of God, my mailman was driving by right when those flames were starting to go. And by the grace of God, my wife was out of town when this happened. My son was literally on the other side of the fence in the backyard crying because there's a fire and he doesn't know what's happening. And so I had to call the community people. I'm like, hey, my trash cans lit on fire and I need new trash cans. Can we make that swap? He's like, yeah, yeah, I'll put it in. We'll make that happen. And then I'm like, hey, by the way, my wife's out of town. So if we could maybe do this today, <laughs> maybe this whole thing never happened. And she's like, no, sorry, it's gonna take some time. Your wife's gonna know that you just burned your trash cans. And I realized it was my fault that this happened because the night before, some guys were over at my house and one of them, who's not here to defend himself, so I won't name him, Ed Long, who goes here, <laughs> he, uh, he brought a portable fire pit. So we sat in the backyard, it was a great night, and then the night was over, the fire was out, I put some water on it, it rained a little bit that night. So 12 hours later, figuring the fire's completely out, I poured the ashes into my plastic trash can. And I blame Ed for this whole thing because I don't know if he had like those birthday candle type concept that just doesn't actually go out, but you think it did. But somehow that thing torched that trash can. Let me show you a picture of it just in case you don't believe me. 
Now, I don't know if you have trash cans, but they don't look like that normally. They're not supposed to. Get this, a few days later, my wife and I were out replacing that part of the fence. My brother-in-law was in the backyard. Why are you taking a picture of this? <laughs> I'm totally kidding. I'll send it to you. My brother-in-law was in the backyard playing with my son and he saw a dead squirrel on the ground. So he tried to fling it away because my son was running towards it and it went over the fence into those people's backyard. So I had to go knock on their door again and go, hey, sorry about that whole fire thing. Also, there's a dead squirrel in your backyard and that's our fault. Can I come get it and throw it in your trash can because I don't have one right now. <laughs> Thankfully, they have forgiven us, and we're fine. But we can use this picture to illustrate the I almost burned your house down neighbor, and this is the neighbor, and maybe they have felt this way about me. I wouldn't blame them. God, please don't call me to love that neighbor. Just not that one person, please. Maybe because they almost burned your house down, or their music's on super loud late at night, or they light off fireworks every weekend, like every weekend is the 4th of July. Maybe it's that they have that political sign in their front yard, and you go, not those people. Oh, no, 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 God, we're not gonna love those neighbors. Three types of neighbors, and most of us probably just have the normal neighbor relationship. Hopefully, you haven't almost burned your neighbor's house down, but our call, this isn't a riddle, our call as believers, as followers of Jesus is to be the loving neighbor, and he doesn't give us limits to that. I'm gonna read to you one of the most famous passages of scripture with one of the most famous stories that Jesus tells, and then I wanna dissect it and read it maybe a little differently than you have before. It's from Luke chapter 10. This is the story of the Good Samaritan, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test. Always goes great when you try to test Jesus. Saying, teacher, what shall I do? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus, of course, looks at him and goes, what's written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. It's that simple. You can quickly tell this guy's going, okay, but that's not that simple. But he, desiring to justify himself, remember that, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who's that? Hopefully not the guy that almost burned my house down. Who's my neighbor in your book, Jesus? So Jesus replies with a story, of course. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, and the whole crowd goes, oh, because the Jewish people hated the Samaritans. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three 
Just like I just laid out three neighbors, this is fairly obvious. Which of these three, lawyer, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer says, the one who showed him mercy. He can't even bring himself to say Samaritan. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So we read this story and it seems fairly straightforward. Okay, I gotta go be the good Samaritan. In a normal outreach message, let's go beyond our four walls of our homes and of our church. You as a pastor, you just come with the big three, the great commission, the great commandment, and the story of the good Samaritan. The great commission, when Jesus comes to his disciples after he's risen from the grave and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now you go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am always with you to the end of the age. That's our mission. Go and tell people about Jesus so they can come to know him, become his disciples, follow him and walk, and they can start to know God and live on purpose and come change the world so more people can come to know Jesus. Jesus made life very simple. What do you do? You love God and you love people. And he even told us the story of the Good Samaritan. And so we all hear that. And then we as a church run out those doors and go, okay, I gotta be the Good Samaritan. I gotta just love everybody. I gotta do everything right. I gotta do all these good works. And we burn ourselves out in about a week. And I've wondered about that. There's a stat that around 10% of your church will follow through if you launch an outreach initiative. They say that about giving, serving, that about a 10th of a church will actually go and act on, respond to an initiative that you launch. Now, our church breaks those statistics, and I'm really proud of that. But even with outreach, there's times where I go, why wouldn't everybody, why don't I sometimes want to jump in on that? Why do we burn out on this concept of loving our neighbors? Why do we have normal neighbor relationships? Why do we often look more like the priest and the Levite and just walk on by? And I think it's because we read this story wrong. You may remember some of you, last summer we did a series called Where's Jesus? And the whole idea was the Bible is like a Where's Waldo book. You're looking for Jesus on every page. It's the story of him. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus tells his disciples, everything I told you while I was with you comes to this. All the things written about me in the law, the prophets and the Psalms have to be fulfilled. Your scriptures, that's the scriptures to these guys. Your whole faith, everything about it had to be fulfilled, which is why he's just gone and done what he's done. And he went on to open their understanding of the word of God, showing them how to read their Bibles this way, asking the question, where's Jesus in this? What is this telling me about Jesus? How is this pointing to Jesus all through scripture? We like to read the Bible as the main character. Some of us have been taught, oh, just put your name into every Bible verse because this story is about you, but this story is about Jesus and he's invited you into the story. The story of the Good Samaritan to understand the story of the Good Samaritan, you first have to understand that you are the man on the side of the road. We read that and go, oh, I'm the Good Samaritan, but first and foremost, you were beaten up by this world, robbed from by your enemy. You were on the side of a road, and a priest or religion passed by you and couldn't save you, and a Levite or the law passed by you because it couldn't save you. But then the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan of the ages, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and he picked you up in your brokenness, in your mess, and he carried you, and he cared for you. And he said, this one, put him on my tab. I'm paying the debt for this one. And he set you up in his, in his church to heal, so then you could go and do likewise. You have to first understand that you are the man on the side of the road, to then live a life getting to go and do likewise. Very often, we're like 
the man, the lawyer in this story. We're asking, here's the question he's asking Jesus. How do I inherit eternal life? What do I do? This is on my shoulders, my salvation. If it's on my shoulders, what do I have to do? So Jesus is like, well, what do you think? He goes, well, it sounds like you've been saying, and when I read the law, the overarching thing is that I'm supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Like, I think I do that. And Jesus goes, yeah, good luck. Do that perfectly, and you can make your way. But this man's quickly realizing, I can't do that. I'm a broken human being. I fall on my face sometimes. I can't save myself. I can't perfectly live that mandate, which is why he then tries to justify himself. Is there another way around this whole thing? Who's my neighbor? What are you asking of me? And the whole point is that Jesus is trying to get everybody to realize you can't save yourself because you're the man on the side of the road and you need the good Samaritan to come and only he can save you. This man asks the question, who is my neighbor? And he's hoping that Jesus says, well, it's just the people right around you. Because in his cultural context, the people right around him where he lived were probably just like him. Looked like him, voted like him, acted like him, believed the same things. And so he's like, just tell me it's the people right next door. That'll be easy. And I think we've kind of flipped that. Where we say, see, it's not literally the people right next to me. It's anybody and everybody. Who's my neighbor? And we've asked God, God, send me across oceans to share my faith, but please don't send me across the street. And if, hey, if your heart is to go to the nations, man, so, so is ours. I love it. We're all about it, but I just wanna make sure that you're also willing to love your neighbor right across the street, right next door to you, because that's part of this. When we have the right perspective on this story, then we get to go and do likewise, but it looks so differently because we've actually grasped salvation. And I wanna read to you from Romans chapter 10 because I think it's probably the simplest explanation of salvation. You'll hear us say a lot at this church that we are not living for salvation. We are living from salvation. And there's a massive difference in how you live your life. In Romans 10, Paul is lamenting that the Israelites, all of these people right around him, they are not grasping this story, the concept that it's only Jesus who can save you. He says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. All of these people around him, like the lawyer, they're trying to earn it. They're trying to justify themselves. And he's going, it's only through Christ. Verse five, Moses writes about this, writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. What does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. Just like Jesus, what Paul is saying is, you're not the savior in this story. You didn't get Jesus to come down. You didn't go get him. You didn't bring him back from the dead. That was God who did that. Only God has made salvation possible. And it's right here in front of your face for you. It's right here. Verse nine, this, this right here is about the simplest explanation of salvation you'll ever find. And I know for some people, maybe you've been in church a while and you're like, man, this is really a back to the basics kind of message. I already know this stuff. 
I tend to find that some of the people who understand salvation the least have been in church the longest. Verse nine, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. That's kind of uncomfortable for a lot of us. We go, it can't be that simple. We're in that lawyer mindset, living for salvation. It just can't be just that Jesus gave me his grace and forgave me and, and that's it, that that's enough for me. Grace is such a foreign concept to broken human beings. Verse 10, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. This is why in church you'll see often we'll go, hey, if you're somebody in this room and you've never called Jesus Lord, I'm not talking about a friend, I'm not talking about a homeboy, I'm not talking about an ingredient, a piece of the puzzle, I'm talking about the Lord of your life. If you've never taken on the grace and forgiveness of the cross, you've never taken up the resurrected life that he has for you for all of eternity, man, throw your hand up in the air. Put your faith in that resurrection. Profess, we'll pray with you. Put, put some words to this, call Jesus Lord. It's that simple. Verse 12, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him for everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's no limits to that. Jew, Samaritan, Gentile, those all fall under the category of everyone. No limits. Now, once you understand you're living from salvation, freely it was given to you, it changes then how you live if you're living from salvation and you take up the mission that God has given you. Verse 14, how then can they, our neighbors, how can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This is why we have pastors going to plant churches in places there's never been churches. How can people know unless somebody goes and tells them? Work this thing backwards. This is why we come together and we go, hey, you're sent into your workplace. You're sent into your neighborhood. You're sent so that the people around you, so that your neighbors, so that they can hear, so that they can believe, so that they can call on the name of the Lord, the good Samaritan of the ages, the only one who can save them, the way and the truth and the life, Jesus Christ. And we get to go tell them that story. The greatest story, the greatest news that any human being on the side of a road could hear. But the key to living this out, to loving our neighbors, is living from salvation, to realize your good works don't earn your salvation. They showcase it. They're the evidence of it. The way that you love, the way that you serve, people around you should be going, man, they've got something. They're so free. They're so willing to love, to step outside of their four walls of their comfort zone. There's something that that person has. Even the way that you fall and get back up should show people the goodness of your God, that you're living from salvation, even when you're beat up, even when you make a mess. I wanna illustrate some specific things in our life and how different they look when you're living for salvation and from salvation. When you're living for salvation, your motivation is fear. You are motivated by fear all the time, like this lawyer asking this question frantically, what do I gotta do? And always feeling like it's not enough. Always afraid that God's looking at you going, not today, better luck tomorrow. 
you are motivated by fear. When you are living from salvation, your motivation and what you go, how you go to live this out is love. It's the love of Jesus that has filled you with that understanding that that's, that's all I've gotten, that's all I need. And that just fills me up and I just overflow that out of my life into the people around me. And this changes how you treat people. Because when you're living for salvation, people are projects. People are projects to you. Because in some way, their transformation, their salvation has a tie to yours. So they're a project because you need results. You're looking at that friend like, when are you gonna change? I really need you to transform and do this right because if I make a disciple, then maybe God will have favor on me because I'm living for salvation. So you put results. People are projects, problems to be solved and eventually you start to lose patience with them. Your relationship flames out. You walk away. I think eventually a lot of us look like that priest or that Levite and walk on by people because we've realized deep down, I can't save them. And you're discouraged when you were never asked to save them. You're asked to go sit with them and introduce them to the one who can save them. When you're living from salvation, people are people. They're just people. They're human beings. You can be in authentic relationships with them. You can have grace for them and mercy for them. You can sit in the mess with them. You can speak truth with grace but you don't have finish lines for them on their behavior modification. You just love them where they're at and you continue to be a loving source of Jesus in their life. You can have empathy for them. You can see them as a human being. Understanding it's hard to be a human being. It's a hard world we live in. And you can be that beacon of light that just treats them as a person. Which changes how relationships go because when you're living for salvation, relationships are transactional. And that's because you start with a transactional relationship with God. I have to do these things. How do I justify myself? How do I inherit this? What do I have to do expecting if I do enough, then maybe God will have favor on me. And then you translate that into your relationships with people, with your neighbor, with your spouse. It's a give and take. Am I getting enough out of this? Do I need to put more into this? With results and expectations of all a transactional relationship. I was reading a business article that was talking about the dangers of transactional relationships in the workplace. That when employees are treated by their bosses in a transactional relationship, it breeds resentment, it isolates people. Eventually, it's a cold workplace that people just walk away from because they're not seen as people, they're just problems or projects. And this article said exactly what I think we're talking about in our faith. When you're living from salvation, relationships are transformative. That's how they should work in our lives because we're authentic, we're playing the long game, we're just in this life together and there's freedom and being human beings and just walking together in relationship. And as we come to go and do likewise and love like Jesus, that transformation just naturally, organically is happening because we're loving our neighbor as a person. It changes how you work. When you're living for salvation, you worship the work because your whole salvation in your mind is based on your works. So everything you do That's what you're paying attention to. Eventually, you might start to think that you're doing a pretty good job and become much like a Pharisee. Everything has become about your good works and then you start playing the judgment and comparison game with people. Well, they don't do as much as I do. I'm crushing it right now. Or when you fall, you just don't get back up because you go, I'm a failure, I'm never gonna make it. And work, your works is the worship of your life. But when you're living from salvation, work is your worship. Everything you do is just an act of worship to bring glory to God. You realize, I don't have to do this. The the change that happens when you're living for salvation to from salvation is when God says do this, 
It doesn't sound like have to, it sounds like get to. It doesn't sound like a new obligation, it's a new invitation. And everything you do from here, go, I'm playing with house money. I've already been given all the grace that I need. And now I get to go live my life as an act of worship to God, everything that I do. Which allows you to be healthy as well in your work relationship when it comes to rest because when you're living for salvation, rest is wrong. There's no time to rest. And if other people are resting, then good. Work harder because you can move yourself up the ladder closer to God while they're all being lazy out there. Rest is for the weak. But when you're living from salvation, rest is a weapon. Rest is so important because it reminds you of your limits. No matter how good you feel like you're doing, you are still the man on the side of the road. I need to be reminded of that, that I need the grace of Jesus. I might be crushing it in life right now, but I still have limits. I'm still a human being. I'm not putting this all back on my shoulders. And rest done right should refill us so that we can pour back out and love our neighbors and go and do likewise. For a lot of us, we're like, I get a couple days to rest. I'm gonna stay up all night and binge watch shows and eat like crap and not sleep and then wonder why I don't feel rested at the end of this weekend. And sometimes it is restful to just watch a show. But rest should restore us, especially spending time restfully with God. But for most of us, our time with God is not restful. Because when you're living from salvation, prayer is a performance. You're doing it because you have to. Well, the guy at church said that I'm supposed to pray. So dear God, I'm gonna talk like I'm in a Shakespeare play. All of a sudden, use this eloquent language, say some things to you, check this box. When you're living from salvation, prayer has a purpose. There's a massive difference in prayer feeling like checking a religious box versus having a conversation in relationship. It would be devastating to me if every day when I came home that my son just came in and reported to me the chores he did for me and then said, okay, I'm going to bed. When I pick my son up from school, all I wanna know is what he did all day. I just wanna talk to him and hear about his life and get to know him more and more and more because he's my son. I didn't bring him into this world so he could do chores for me. I want a relationship with him. And you see that that time you spend with God actually fills you and has such a purpose and it has a purpose in how you pray for the people around you, for your neighbors. I'm praying for the cup of sugar lady. I'm praying that I could become that neighbor to her, that there'd be an open door. I'm praying for the people whose house I almost burned down. That when I invite them to this place that they'll show up that they can come to know the beautiful story of Jesus in their lives. You add all this up, and when you're living for salvation, your end game is burnout. And a lot of you, maybe you're there, you've been there, you walked away from your faith a long time ago because you just burnt out. Because you were smart enough to realize, like this lawyer, I can't do this on my own. And maybe all you were fed growing up in church was, you better get better, improve those works, you gotta move yourself up the ladder. You gotta earn this. You gotta be the good Samaritan and nobody ever told you that the good Samaritan came for you first. So you burned out. But when you're living from salvation, your end game is poured out. And there's a massive difference between those two things. Calling back to 2 Timothy, Paul, at the end of his life, I've been poured out like an offering. I've just let everything God's filled me with just poured out to the world. My salvation moment happened when I was a sophomore in college. The fact that we're pastors of a church, our friends like Luke that knew us in college or like Clark and Christmas Vacation, Eddie, if I woke up with my head sewn to the carpet, I wouldn't be more shocked than I am right now. 
I was a renegade college guy, living my life, doing my thing, and I had a wake-up call from God. And I kind of realized, like, okay, I've always thought God was out there, and at this point, it seems like he might be looking for me, like there's a warrant out for me, and he can't possibly like me or want anything to do with me, so what do I gotta do to, like, make amends here? Well, obviously, the first thought I had was, I guess I should probably just go to a church. So I walked into a college ministry in Boulder, and one of the first things I heard there was that there was gonna be a winter break mission trip to Cuba. So I signed up. I didn't know anyone going, but I thought, okay, here's some good works. God, if I do a mission trip, does that cancel out like some of these one-night stands and bad decisions and relationships I've screwed up and people I've hurt? Like, can we even that scale a little bit? So I signed up for this mission trip, and I had no business being on this team. This is like representatives of the gospel going to a communist country, and I didn't even know if I believed in God or what my relationship with him was. I showed up to the airport hungover, regretting the decisions that I'd made the night before and regretting more so that I'd signed up to go on a trip with a bunch of Christians for my winter break when I could have been partying with my buddies. So I get on the plane and I'm like, why did I do this? Oh yeah, I need to like prove myself to God or something. We get to Cuba and we're working with this ministry that has a farm and the whole idea is that they can provide through this farm for a bunch of people living in poverty because you're in a communist country where pretty much nobody has anything. I'm like, well, that's noble. That's a good thing for me to be a part of. And they can have church there, quietly bring people together to worship freely. And my job on the work site for this whole trip was to dig a hole for a septic tank. My trip leader was really good at identifying spiritual gifts. <laughs> this guy, you're gonna dig a hole. And I wish I could say that I've gained some more, but I think that's about all I've got. Every day we'd show up to the work site, I had a pickaxe and a shovel and I would just, it was clay. The ground was clay. I just pickaxe and shovel it out. Pickaxe, shovel it out all day. And it was exhausting. But the whole time I'm like, see God, check this out. Look at me. I'm on a mission trip. I'm helping these people in this poor country. I'm doing good for you. And get to the end of each day, like how many days do we have left of this trip? God, how many days do I got to do until we're all good and I can go back to business as usual? Midway through the trip, it was New Year's Eve 2008 going into 2009, and we had a huge bonfire celebration. And around the fire, a bunch of people from our team and some of the Cuban people we were working with were sharing stories of what God was doing in their life. And it was one of those moments where you don't fully understand, but you know you need to just respond. Like my heart was just beating out of my chest. And then there was this really long, awkward pause in the circle. And I'm like, okay, I get it. I'll say something. I just said, hey, I, uh, I probably shouldn't have been allowed on this trip. Trip leader Jamie, thank you for letting me come. And I'm watching the way you guys live your lives and I'm seeing these people in Cuba that seem to have nothing, but they have everything that I don't. Joy and hope and purpose. And I've been reading the Bible. We had to do devotional every morning and read the Bible. And this is the first time I cracked the Bible as an adult for myself. And I was reading things about Jesus like, this isn't what I thought. This guy's a whole lot better than I was told. And if it's true what this says and what you guys are saying, that, that God could even love somebody like me. Like I was very well aware that I was the man on the side of the road at this point. But if Jesus could love somebody like me after everything I've done, if he would pick me up, if he died on the cross for me, I'm not an exception to the grace of God. I'm not the one person that God goes, that wasn't for you. If this is really here for me, if he rose from the grave to give me eternal life, then I want that. I need that. 
and also I don't know what to do from here. And so they rallied around me and we prayed and they helped me to pray and I called Jesus Lord of my life. You're not some guy that I'm just gonna hear about from a distance, like you're in charge now. All these other things I've tried, they haven't worked. I want a relationship with you. I put my faith in him that night. And I didn't transform overnight. You can ask Luke. Been a work in progress and always will be. But I can tell you that I dug differently for the rest of that trip. I showed up to that work site with no weight on my shoulders anymore because I wasn't doing that for salvation. I was doing it from salvation. Thinking, man, if this septic tank somehow makes this place possible for people to come and find out the good news that I just found out last night, man, I wanna be a part of stuff like this. I'd get to the end of those days and I was poured out. I was tired, but I couldn't wait to get back there the next day. I was mad that we had to come home. I didn't want to. The guy who didn't wanna get on the plane didn't wanna leave because I'd experienced salvation. The good Samaritan came from me. and thought, man, for the rest of my life, I just wanna be poured out. I just wanna pour it all out so more people can come to know what I've come to know. And if we can grasp this as Christians, if we as a church right here in Austin, if we can get this and live our lives from salvation, motivated by the love of Jesus, seeing people as people with transformative relationships, our work just as worship to him, not to earn anything from him, but to show the beauty of what he's done in our lives, praying with a purpose, pouring our lives out, this city will notice. I wanna show you one last thing. This is a map of Austin, a heat map that shows where all of you guys live. We don't sell your information or anything, I promise. Our IT guy made this for me. And if you've ever done anything at this church, you give, you serve, you've been a part, sign up for something, then you're a part of this map. Some of you drive from beyond this map. So God bless you. That is a lot of neighbors covered in this map. And we're a four-year-old church. So many neighborhoods covered on that map by this church family. Here's a bonus. There are a ton of great churches in this city. Mackenzie and I are part of an outreach roundtable. Every other month we get together with pastors from all over the city. We collaborate and talk about how we can work together and serve the city. And you know what we found, the common theme with all these churches, different expressions of the gospel, different styles of worship. Everybody just wants the city to know Jesus. Everybody just wants the Good Samaritan to walk through here and pick up all these people that we see in our neighborhoods that don't know him. We're all in this together and they cover a lot more of that map. And if we as the church, if we can live from salvation, then if we were to ever disappear, our city would notice. But here's the good news. We're not going anywhere. We're planted here. And our call has been to go and love our city and change this world together.